get a light round of applause for the dads in the room, eh? Happy Father's Day. Um, like Sarah, I was thinking about dad jokes, but I'm not quite there yet. I'm only a two-month-old dad, so haven't leveled up to that level yet. So, but let, before we get started here, let's just, I'm just going to pray both for the dads and for the sermon. You guys bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you for who you are. God, thank you for dads. Thank you that you are the perfect father. Thank you for the gift of fatherhood. Lord, we also pray for those dads amongst us who have not been able to become fathers, God. We pray that you tell their hearts that your love and desire and rejoicing in them is not rooted in them as a father, God. We ask that you sing that to their hearts today. And God, we thank you for um, the children that you've given to us as dads. God, we love you so much. We pray uh, for the sermon today that you would open our hearts. Help us to receive anything that your scripture has to say. God, help me to be a window into that. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So, my mom was uh, telling me a story this week um, about this one time when I was maybe five, six, seven years old. She had left me and my brother with a babysitter at home, and then she'd come back, and somebody had taken a crayon all over the couch. I know, it was, it was a bad day. And then my mom was like, hey, Adam, did you, I was the oldest, okay, I'm the oldest brother at seven. There's another brother at five at that point. She's like, Adam, did you, what happened, what happened with the couch? And I was like, I don't know. I don't, I don't know what happened, how that crayon got on the couch. And my mom was like, okay, well, and she just assumed that it was my younger brother who was like, you know, four at the time. She didn't even punish him because he's so little. It's like he doesn't even get what's happening, right? And then she told me that in my early 20s, I confessed to her that it was me. In my early 20s. And I was like, oh, yeah, I forgot that I did that. I did confess to that, too, and it was kind of hilarious. And the funny thing about kids is you get to watch them as their consciences, consciences like come online. Like you get to watch them as they feel guilt for the first time. And maybe they confess, maybe they don't. You get to watch them as they begin to get an understanding of sin and wrongdoing, Um, which is a really crazy thing to kind of behold. She told me this other story about how uh, this thing she called the guilt stare. I was like, what is that? She's like, well, you and your brothers, you used to, when you guys would do things wrong, you used to walk up into my room and just walk in the door and then just stare at me. It's probably me. I was, I was like the worst of the toddlers. It was only later that I was like, yeah, I'll work for a church and preach. That's what I'll do. Um, but she said this thing called the guilt stare that we would do, and, and she'd be like, hey, sweetie, everything okay? And we'd be like, no, yeah, yes, everything's fine. And then she'd be like, okay, uh, anything you want to talk about? No? Okay. And then, you know, she'd probably go downstairs, find a glass broken on, who knows what she'd find, right? But we would do this thing where our little consciences were prickling, our spidey senses were tingling, and we didn't know what to do about it, so we just walk in and stare at her, because <laughs> we didn't know what else to do. We didn't know what else to do. And this does not, as we know, go away into adulthood. This does not disappear. In fact, the stakes just get higher, Right? The stakes just get higher into adulthood when we feel our consciences tingling about things. And, you know, like when we were children, when we're adults, we have many opportunities 
to, to obviously feel sin, but also confess sin because we have many sins, so there's many opportunities to confess it or not. We feel guilt and shame into adulthood, the result of our sin. And you know, it, it, it's a terrifying thing to look into the abyss of your sin. It's a horrifying thing to look in the mirror and see with clear eyes the sin in our lives. It's a horrifying thing to kind of behold that, but the sickness of sin bubbles up in our lives. But in the same way that ignoring like health sickness is like one of the worst things that you can do, in the same way that ignoring that is horrible, so too with our sin. So too with our sin. This reality of sin and guilt in our lives is something that we have to consider as we ask ourselves the question, what do we do about the sin in our life? We feel it a lot. Even if you're not a Christian here today, you're exploring. That feeling of guilt comes up a lot. And maybe some of us, we handle that different ways. Like maybe some of us are like, I have no regrets. And other of us are like, I have so many regrets. I would change like all these things that I did when I, when I made that decision, right? It's, it's a really important thing for us to consider because we feel it a lot. And it hurts. And again, it's terrifying to look into the abyss of our sin. It's a terrifying thing. And Psalm 51 is the passage that we're going to be in today. Psalm 51 is a psalm um, that David wrote, and it paints a beautiful picture for us of what we do with our sin. It paints a beautiful picture for us. And here's the thing about Psalm 51. There's, uh, Jonathan, can you help me out here? Um, Oh, too many. Um, Psalm 51 is, uh, there's, there's about 14 psalms in the 150 psalms in the Psalter that have this thing called like a historical title. There's about 14 psalms that have like a sentence about this was like the context that this psalm was written in. This is what was happening. And Psalm 51 is, is one of those. And what it says is that David wrote Psalm 51 right after the prophet Nathan came in and told him about the wrongdoing he had just done with Bathsheba. For those of you who don't know that story, King David, he's the king of Israel. Bathsheba is this woman that he sees bathing on a rooftop. And she's married. And he just says, I want her. He takes her, sleeps with her, impregnates her, and then has her husband killed. Literally has this guy who's out in the, like, the field of battle serving David, has him killed. And then the prophet Nathan comes and tells David, what have you done? And then David, in the depth of his pain and realization of his guilt, writes Psalm 51. That's the context here. And it's a really important context as we begin to go in it. So Psalm 51, we're going to do it in the CSB. Feel free to follow along with your Bibles or here on the screen. This is Psalm 51. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. According to your abundant compassion, blot out my rebellion. Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion. And my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Turn your face away from my sins and blot out all my guilt. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of your salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways and sinners will return to you. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not want a sacrifice or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. In your good pleasure, cause Zion to prosper. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is Psalm 51. And this first question that we ask comes from kind of the flow of the text, the order that David goes through things. This is the first question that kind of comes up with the first maybe five verses. When we sin, where do we turn first? Where does David turn first in this psalm that God superintended to be in the Bible after David committed probably the most horrendous sin of his life? Where do we turn first? Here's where David turns. To the fertile soil of God's faithful love. Look at what the first verse According to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. This is so important because when we sin, we don't want to talk about that. We don't want to take that to God. We don't want to take that to other people. We don't want to talk about it out loud. And so the first thing David does is remind himself of the faithful, trustworthy love of God. God, you are faithful with your love. You are compassionate towards me. He's talking about the truths about who God is as a faithful lover towards us, giving himself the confidence to bring forth his confession. This is the soil that David brings, that David kind of gives himself, right? Think about a child. Think about a child with like a dad who the child has done wrong things over the course of their life, obviously, right? But if if there's a dad that, just on Father's Day, using a dad, if there's a dad that has consistently and gently demonstrated his love for the child, even after really bad decisions, that trust gets built. And so if the kid grows up and gets older and makes bigger, more intense bad decisions, bigger sins that affect more people, that are more serious, that trust with his father is already there. And he knows that he can take it to him. And David's saying, God, this is, this is who God is for him. He's a trustworthy father with a faithful love that he can take his confession to. And David didn't even know the extent to what God was going to do in Jesus. The God of the Bible, who didn't even spare his own son, David didn't know the full extent to which God was going to do that. And we do. How much more can we trust the love of the Father to bring our horrific guilt before him, to bring the things that we feel so agonizingly bad about, before him in his love and compassion. This is the critical first step. Here's the next thing. So verses three through five, this is just what I'm calling a true confession. This is the next thing that David moves into after acknowledging who God is, a true confession. The first part of a true confession is a consciousness of sin. Look at what David says. For I am conscious of my rebellion 
and my sin is always before me. My sin is always before me. This is, if you don't have this, you can't go anywhere because if you don't think you've sinned, you don't need to confess. If you don't think you've sinned, you don't need Jesus. You don't need grace if you don't recognize it as that. Look, probably, there's probably been times in your life where you've done something wrong. Maybe you've heard this, maybe you haven't. I've heard this. Where you did something wrong and you're talking to people about it and they say, oh, that's not you. That you... That, that's not how you normally are. You just need to forget about that and move forward. This is an outlier. This is an anomaly. You just need to forget about that and move on. That's not you. This is what David is saying. It is you. It's us. Jesus himself says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A man with the evil stored up in his heart brings forth evil. We don't get to look at the sinful fruit in our lives and then look at ourselves and go, oh, that didn't come from me. This tree is fine. That didn't come from me. Yes, it did. And this is critical because if we don't recognize this, we don't need him. We don't need him. And the reality is that we do. The reality is we need him so bad. And a consciousness of sin what David is saying we need to do is we need to look our sin in the eyes and call it for what it is. We need to look our sin in the eyes and call it sin. Recognize the wicked things that we've done, not justify it, not blame our circumstances. I did this because, da, da, da. no, this comes out of our hearts. Not everyone responds to circumstances the same way. People respond out of the abundance of their heart. This is what Jesus says in once we have a consciousness of our sin, then we turn to the unfailing love of the Father because we see our need. We see our need. Have you peered into the depths of your own sin and called it for what it is? I don't just mean from like an overall level, and if you haven't, that's important. I'm just talking about specific things. What are the specific things that you look at and maybe you've justified over the years? Maybe you've made excuses over the years. I've done this many times. Many times. And look, that advice traps people. It's literally a trap because you can't move forward and be changed. You can't move forward and be changed if you don't think it's wrong. Consciousness of sin is the first part of David's confession, and it ushers him into God's grace. It ushers him in into the unfailing love of God. This is the critical first step of, of a true confession. Here's the next part. The next part that he goes into is, a, is that sin is a sin against God, first and foremost. Look at this. This is kind of baffling. Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. And some of y'all right now are probably being like, wait, didn't you just say this guy killed a dude and stole his wife? Doesn't he have to repent to that guy? Like, surely, if at any time you have to confess something to somebody, it's when you kill them and steal their wife, right? And you would be right if you say, David should apologize to other people for, against whom he has sinned. You would be right. And when we look at the whole testimony of the Scripture, it teaches us how we should interpret this. The first interpreter of the Bible in our tool belt is the Bible itself. And 
even, even like if you go to the narrative in, I think it's 2 Samuel 11, where the prophet comes to, Jesus, comes to David and says, you've done this wrong, he even implies that he should apologize. Well, if Uriah was still alive, but he implies that that's some, a debt that he has to make up to those people that he sinned against. The way that the rest of the Bible shows us to interpret against you, you alone, I have sinned, is that sin is primarily, first and foremost, against God. God is the sovereign. This is his universe, man. We're just living in it. God is the sovereign. We're ourselves, we're more gods than we are ourselves. He created us. Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, was more gods than she was Uriah's. God created the laws of good and evil in the same way that he created the constant of gravity. This is God's universe. And nobody knows, nobody knows sin like God does. Nobody can see your sin. Not even you can see your sin the way that God sees it. And so David rightly leads us. And this can be something that we forget. Like some, maybe some of you all have, a, have, have pretty good habits of confession towards people that you wrong. You're good apologizers. But sometimes it can slip through our memories that we first need to confess to God as David leads us. Because sin is first and foremost against God. He is the sovereign. This is why it's right for him to judge. Look at that next verse that I didn't highlight, but I'm just realizing now. <laughs> so you are right when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge because he's the sovereign. And he writes the laws. He says what's good and what's evil in the same way that he wrote the constant of gravity. Um, when we sin, where do we turn first? The fertile uh, soil of God's faithful love, a true confession and consciousness of our sin, seeing it for what it is. Sin is against God first, and here's the last thing. The last thing is in verse 5 here. Understanding our sin nature. Now, this is a part of who we are, and it has been that way from birth. Look at what he says. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. We can see this in kids. We can see it emerge in kids, and it's mildly horrifying, right? Even though they're cute, it's also mildly horrifying. David is saying that we're born this way. We're, from this, we're this way from the start. This is something that's a part of us, and it's something that affects every part of us. Our logic, our ability to reason, our emotions, our sexuality, our decision-making. There's no part of us that the brokenness of sin hasn't touched. And it's important for us to realize this as we come before God and realize our utter need for him. And we've always needed him. We've always needed his faithful love. This is what we do when we turn, we're, this is where we turn first when we sin, to a true confession and, and God's faithful love. So this next question comes from the second movement of the psalm. The second movement of the psalm, the, the question that comes up is, what does God want for us then? When we sin, after we acknowledge, God, you're faithful, we can take anything to you. You knew what we would do, Lord Jesus, and you still died for us. You're trustworthy. We can come to you. So what do you want for us? What does God want for us when we sin? Here is the first thing that's in verses 6 and 16. Look at verse 6. Surely you desire integrity in the inner self. This is how 16 says it. You do not want a sacrifice, or I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. This is what David is saying. God wants you. He doesn't want you to go through the motions. 
He wants you in your heart. Look, we see this in pro sports all the time. Like an athlete making billions of dollars makes a, big, makes a bad decision. Somebody hands him a lawyered statement, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry for da 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 right? No, there's no heart in it a lot of times. Sometimes there is. But a lot of times there's not, okay? The pre-teen version of this is the apology with the eye roll. Have you ever seen that? If you got like a younger sibling where it's like, sorry. Obviously not sorry, okay? <laughs> we can tell you're not sorry, dude. This is what God's saying. I don't want you to just be ritualistic towards me. I want you. You're the one that I love, not your actions. Look, if somebody, if somebody wronged you and they gave you a bullcrap apology, how are you going to feel about that? You're going to be like, sweet, that's closed. Case closed. Let's move on and be friends. No, you're going to see like a fake apology and it's going to hurt your heart because you realize that they don't get the wrong. They don't get it. And it's the same thing. This is what David's saying about God. You desire integrity in the inner self. You do not delight in a sacrifice in this case or I would give it. You desire a broken spirit. God's saying, I want your heart because that's you. And you're the one that I care about. Not a box-checking God. I created you because I delight in you and you bring me glory. And I want you. The heart's integrity. Are you going through the motions with God with this? Are you just ritualistically saying sorry because you feel like you should? Or do you feel it in the depths of your soul and realize God's desire for you? And that he wants to have a real conversation with you about it. What does God want for us when we sin? The heart's integrity. Here's the next one. He wants us to ask him to change our hearts. Look at verses 10 and 12. God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is how it says at the end. Sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. David is saying, God, you need to change me. You need to affect my will. Because I, don't, I, I want bad things, God. What can I do? Some of us have, felt, probably all of us have felt this. Just the entrapment of sin. And even when you do something wrong, you're like, gosh, would I really have done something different though if I went back in time? I, I'm broken. I want these things and I don't want to want them, but I do want them. A sexual addiction to pornography. Maybe you want to break it, but you just feel like you can't. Just being overcome with anxiety and worry and fear. It feels like there's nothing you can do. Some, some news of something comes on, you're just ratched in, in, in fear, you're just consumed and chained by your fear. It just locks you up, and there's nothing that you can do. When I was younger, one of the things that I felt this way about, God had spoken to me very clearly, and he had told me that I was extremely arrogant and judgmental. And I heard him, and I knew that was true. And I heard him loud and clear. Like I was getting feedback from God's people. I was seeing it in his word and like some supernatural stuff too. It was crazy. It takes 10 sermons, okay? We're not going to talk all about that. <laughs> but um, I, I remember realizing that God wanted to change that. And I was so frustrated because I was like, God, this is how I am. I just think these things. I can't just stop. Like I can't just Stop thinking that I'm better than other people. I can't just stop judging them. It just comes out of my consciousness. What? And I remember saying, God, if you, I get that you want to change this. But you know what? Good luck. 
Because I'm not going to change that. I can't. And the, the tidal wave that came upon me in the year or two after that, and I just looked back on that moment where I said that to God, and I just realized that God was like, I've been waiting years for you to say that. I've been waiting years for you to invite me into this. Now put your seatbelt on. <laughs> and it was, it was crazy. And this is what David is pointing us to, that God is the renewer of hearts. God changes our wills, what we want, what we desire. God puts new hearts in us. Not the self-help section of Barnes & Noble. I guess Barnes & Noble is dead. Not the self-help section of Amazon slash self-help. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, we have to ask God to change our hearts because he is the heart changer. And this is what David is saying. What does God want for us when we sin? The heart's integrity. He wants the real us. He wants us to ask him to change us because he's the changer of hearts. Do you confess to God and ask for his help as often as you feel ensnared by sin? If you feel trapped with something, because remember, God is sovereign. He can deliver you from literally any sin. Do you believe that? Do you believe that if you seek him with your whole heart and ask for him to change you, that he can? If you doubt that, I challenge you to put it to the test. I challenge you to invite him in and see what the power of the God of the universe is capable of. I invite you. Here's the last one. Um, what does God want for us when we sin? You know, when I was, I was going, like preparing for the sermon, the, verse seven kept like coming up. I was like, what the heck does this even mean? Purify me with hyssop. I'll be clean. Like, what is hyssop? Is that like an essential oil or something? Like, what is that? Because if it is, it could heal anything, right? <laughs> and I started to look up what hyssop is. And the first place in the Bible, and the first place that um, you see it is in Exodus 12, where the Israelites are coming out of Egypt. And God says, I'm going to judge Egypt. Take a hyssop branch, dip it in the blood of a sacrificed animal, put it over your doors, and my judgment will pass over you. I will, that's the first Passover. My judgment will, will pass over you. That's the first time that we see it. Then we see it again in Leviticus where people with like leprous skin diseases, like in the Mosaic law, they had like quarantine laws to prevent like outbreaks from spreading. And hyssop was used in the ritual that God told his people to do that declared them clean and brought them back into the people of God instead of quarantine. Hyssop was used in that. Then again, it gets used in numbers as a sin offering, like it gets burned up with a sin offering, like a sacrificial animal. I think that one's a cow. And, um, and also with, in Numbers, it's where if you, get, if you touch, like, get, get in contact with a dead body, the, the ceremonial cleansing uses hyssop to make them clean again. And I was like, wow, okay. And then I went to John 19. This is one of the, this place in the New Testament that has hyssop. And in John 19... It's when Jesus is dying, and he's on the cross, and he says, can you give me something to drink? And they say, okay, and they take a hyssop branch and dip a sponge in vinegar and put it on the hyssop branch and give it to Jesus. And then Jesus says, he bows his head, and he says, it is finished. 
And he says he gives up his spirit to God. And I realized that the hyssop branch is a symbol and a witness throughout God's redemptive history. It's there as the Israelites come out and into the promised land and promise of the, of the first covenant. It's there to cleanse people and bring people back into the community of God. It's there when the sting of death is tasted by everyone. And it's there when the Lord Jesus gives up his spirit. Psalm 51 and the hyssop branch is a witness to us of the faithful love of God in the Lord Jesus. Every time the blood that gets spilled from the animal, it's pointing to Jesus. The reconciliation back into the community, it's pointing to Jesus. The victory over death, it's pointing to Jesus. The hyssop branch is a witness for us to what our Lord did. And when we pray with David our confession, when we pray with David our confession, we remember him. And the way the hyssop branch witnessed his death and cleaned us washed us. I was crying in the coffee shop when I was reading, when I was figuring all this out. I thought it was pretty cool because hyssop, seriously, it's like, what is that, honestly? Turns out there's a lot behind hyssop. So what does God want for us when we sin? He wants your heart. He wants you to ask him to change your heart. And he wants you to see his son. He wants you to see the fulfillment of everything that he was working towards in his redemptive plan. In your guilt and your shame, he wants you to see that for those who are in Jesus, there's no more debt. It's been paid for. In your guilt and your shame, he wants to restore you with the reality of his son. And in that restoration, in that restoration, we ask, what does restoration look like? And David talks about some of these things. Verses 12 and 15, look at what David says. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. My mouth will declare your praise. Restore the joy of your salvation to me. God wants to restore our joy when we sin against him. He wants to change us. He wants us to see sin for what it really is. And then he wants to usher us into grace. And then he wants to bring back the joy of salvation. He just wants to wallow around in self-pity the rest of your life because there's no more debt. Why would we do that when that doesn't reflect our reality? God wants to take you back into joy. You know, it's ironic that these truths are coming from the lips of a murderer. <laughs> Let that sink in, that God decided to tell us these things and lead us in this prayer from the lips of a murderer. So for any of you out there who think, no, not this sin, it's too black, it's too dark, it's too, it's too evil. God wants to say, no, it's not. I sent my son knowing what you would do. I sent my son knowing what you would do, and not just that. I want to restore you, and I want to bring back your joy. I want you to sing to me, and I will put words of song in your mouth because I've wiped your debt clean. Self-pity can leave us. Here's the next one. What does restoration look like? The return of joy. And the next one is this. The witness of our story. 
Look at how David says it. Then I will teach the rebellious your ways. And sinners will return to you. Remember, this is at the end of the restoration process. This is after David has come, bared his heart before his God, confessed his sin, and then God begins to change him. Just the same way that he does with us. Changes David's heart and then takes him into joy. And then David says, then I will teach the rebellious your ways. Hopefully, if you are a Christian, then you have experienced the restoration that David's talking about. You have experienced a changed heart. You have experienced God changing your wants. And the text is asking us, have you told people about that? (laughs) Have you gone out and shared that? Because remember, we're restored to joy in the process of confession and the shame and the guilt being taken away. We're restored to joy, and now we have a story. We have an experience of the never-ending faithful love of God. And David's saying, then I went and I told people about it. And sinners returned to him. If, I mean, God willing, every single one of us in here will get to see the almighty of power of God save people. It's one of the, it's probably the most exciting thing to witness. Watch the power of God change somebody. And he uses us to do that. He wants us to be on the front lines and see that. So, your friends, your family, your coworkers, do they know about you? Do they know what God's done? Have you told them about the ways that he's restored you? Because God wants you to. Because he wants to bring that to others and he wants to, to let you be a part of that. He wants to let you be a part of that. He wants you to tell your story. He wants you to tell your story. So, in conclusion, remember that first question we asked? What do we do about the sin in our life? The first thing we do is remind ourselves that our God is trustworthy. We can literally take anything to him. That's why he had a murderer tell us that can literally take anything to him. We need a consciousness of our sin. Not ignoring it, not turning away from it, but looking at it in the eyes, calling it for what it is, and then confessing it to God in a real way. Not in a pro-sports, lawyered statement way. He wants you and your heart. He wants your heart's integrity. He wants you to ask him to change you. And then he wants to remind you that he paid for it already in Jesus. And you have that. You have that. And then he wants you to tell your story because he's restored you to joy. That's what we do with the sin in our life. That's what Psalm 51 leads us in. David's confession. His prayer. This is a prayer. So pray with me. God, God, we love you so much. God, who are you that you went to the cross for us knowing every single thing we do? Lord Jesus, it was us and what we did that put you there. It was us and what we did that created the need for you to do something. Lord Jesus, thank you 
that your love and your power can overcome any sin. Thank you that you just don't want to forgive us, God, because that would have been enough. But you want to actually return us to joy. God, you want us to stare our sin in the eyes. God, help us in the midst of that fear to know what that is for us this week. Tell us what you want us to bring to you. Help us to trust you with it. And then change us, God. Change our hearts as only you can. And then use our story to change others. We love you so much, Lord Jesus. In your name, amen.